Welcome to the Knife Journal Podcast, episode 23. My name is Kyle Versteg. Jim Noka is not with us today because he is out at SHOT Show. So this is just a tide you over episode until we can both be back. This weekend I'm headed down to Orlando, so I won't be around. He's not going to be around for a bit. So we decided to put out uh, something a little bit older. This is an interview that I recorded with Ethan Becker at his uh, woodland home in Tennessee uh, sometime this last fall, so fall of 2013. Uh, We think you'll find it interesting, and uh, we will be back live with the two of us, or recorded with the two of us, uh, sometime uh, next week. Thanks for listening. So this is another... uh Knife Journal podcast for you. I'm uh, still in Tennessee uh, with Ethan Becker, and we're on Half Moon Ridge. So if you've if you've heard, you know, the Rush, Rush Limbaugh show, every once in a while you'll hear ads for dockable lakefront property, scenic <laughs> Lake Teleco. I'm actually like a, just a few miles from that lake that they're talking about. <laughs> yes, actually, Teleco Lake. You can throw rocks into it from here. Yeah. That's the top of the river. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we uh, spent the afternoon, evening, and morning kind of talking about knives, doing some knife chat, and kind of talking through some things. And you showed me a book that's in your library, well used. that, many uh, stickies, many stickies uh, on different pages, and you can you can still get it on uh, Amazon. I actually bought a hardcover copy of it yesterday, um, but you can get it on your Kindle if you've got a Kindle. And it's called "A Glossary of the Construction, Decoration, and Use of Arms and Armor in All Countries and in All Times," together with some closely related subjects. <laughs> so it's like a 30-word title <laughs> by George Cameron Stone. And you, yours is a 1963 publication. Yeah. And um, you were, our discussion was uh, that there's very little new under the sun, basically. <laughs> I think that's very, very true. There Somebody recently said to me, if you get the uh, Exactive catalog, <laughs> all the basic blade shapes are there. And uh, But the only thing that a modern knife designer can really do is rearrange the pieces in a more either visually appealing way or with a more comfortable handle, uh, a different grind on the blade of the example that you have seen or that you have intuited from what you you get out of a book. And um, and I think if I've had any utility as a knife designer, it's because I've been a lifelong knife nut, mm-hmm. and I collected them a long, for a long time and used them um, 
And some knives I didn't use for very long. Some of them mere seconds before I said, oops, this one's no good. And some for quite a long time. And there, there are a few. Um, and I was, I was, think back to if I was not in the knife business. Mm-hmm. If I wasn't making my own knives, what would I buy? Mm-hmm. What would I use? And um, both among stuff I already own and stuff that I would have to go out and purchase. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to talk about those that I would go out and purchase because I'd rather you go out and buy a Bucker knife. <laughs> right. <laughs> there should be something that will work for you. Yes. Yeah. But um, ask me on a one-to-one basis, and I'll probably tell you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I won't. I won't give your secrets up. The the uh, and so the 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 other book that you have, I went and tried to buy, and a used copy of it was about nine hundred bucks. And it's by M. H. Cole. The the best of U.S. military knives. Bayonets and machetes. I bought that three years ago for fifty bucks. <laughs> this is one maybe the best single investment <laughs> on a percentage basis I've ever made. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, I looked through there, and so I decided that there was no way I was going to be able to buy it. Um, but it's got. Uh, Basically, good scale drawings uh, of pretty much all of the military issue knives, you know, from from Civil War times up through more modern times. I think they kind of cut it off at about the Korean War, is what it looks like. Vietnam, I think. Vietnam. Okay. And then there's a there's another book on Amazon, something about the military U.S. military knives of Vietnam. And that's a three hundred dollar book. You know, yeah. So, um, but they, those types of reference books, are extremely interesting to look at because you page yeah. through them, and you see, you know, designs from, from history and how they, pretty much stay the same. You know, there are some usable blade shapes that have been derived by people to be useful for certain tasks, and they're pretty consistent throughout history. Again, speaking as as a designer, you can change balance points. Mm -hmm. You can change grinds, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you can can change your your blade geometry and your edge geometry and stuff. And modern materials have given people the the opportunity to change a lot. Mm-hmm. So you used to have to have a lot of bulk, right, for strength in certain in certain circumstances. Um, and now with with better with better but modern steels, you can do that. And by modern, I'm talking about nineteen. I'm not sure when 1095 first came in, but it wasn't really all that long ago, mm-hmm. uh, probably the 1920s. Because when you talk about knives, you talk about, you're talking about going back to the very first tools that 
man ever used, knife being number three, I think. Mm -hmm. And that is the, the sharp stick, <laughs> the club, <laughs> um, and the round stone. And uh, I guess the, the sharpened stick was number four because it was so much easier to take the, the, the broken rock and scrape it into a, <laughs> into a, a, a sharp stick. And materials have changed, but still the sharpest knife that you can own is made from obsidian because that edge is one molecule wide, hmm. and uh, which is why they make such great scalpels. Yeah, there's when I was in uh, medical school, there were still a few uh, obsidian scalpels available, uh, and it was for um, the old school guys that were doing um, eye surgery. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't know if you can still get them, but when I was in medical school, which would have been 97 to 2001, they were still in use. Because mm -hmm. lasers weren't quite as widely available as they are now. Um, but they were just little dinky things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like a teeny tiny little... Well, I think when I got my eyes worked on, the guy told me he was using a diamond chip. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, it lasts a lot longer than the obsidian ones. <laughs> you look at. Wouldn't want to leave a like, little bit of that behind in the old eyeball. I don't think. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's. Yeah. It would work its way out at some point. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 poor form. <laughs> poor form to leave surgical instruments and sponges behind in the patient. That's <laughs> one of the things we check for before we... And even then, sometimes in the heat of battle, you will miss something. But, uh... So that was a very interesting several-hour discussion that we had. And, uh... I've gotten some good perspective on... on some of the knives that people have asked me to make for them and where to draw inspiration from. So that was quite interesting. Because I'm not a military vet, and I am not a knife fighter. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a runner. <laughs> I run half marathons. <laughs> you know? So uh, I would rather avoid any confrontations. So I don't really necessarily understand what the requirements are for a... Somebody asked me to make them a combat knife. I'm like... What the heck is that? Where would I... I mean... As I, as I mentioned to you last night, when people ask the question, what's a combat knife? It's like, what's an outdoor knife? Yeah. And there was a guy who was a, a dealer, an early guy on the Internet, who said the difference between an outdoor knife and a kitchen knife is a sheath. <laughs> and to a degree... A combat knife is a knife used in combat. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the Cole book that you quoted, the, the World War II uh, mess kit knife yeah. with the aluminum handle was one of the most used combat knives around <laughs> because that was handy when people got pissed off at each other and started to cut each other. Yeah. <laughs> they said that over, over dinner they, uh, you know, you're out and about during the day and tension builds up and somebody says something about somebody's sister 
then they're sitting down at dinner and they're in close proximity. If somebody whips off, and the next thing you know, out comes the little things deteriorate. Right. Yeah. So, and you and I just a little earlier were talking about the fact that where military knives are concerned, and this again, I'm not a vet. I'm just a long-term observer of the cutlery scene. Okay. That in a lot of military knives, there is a ceremonial um, component. Mm-hmm. And you can see this probably in recent times most, uh, most often expressed with the SS daggers of World War II. Now, there were a lot of those laying around when I was a kid because people's parents, uh, my, my, uh, my childhood buddies, his dad would bring those home, okay, or had brought them home. And uh, uh, we would all ooh and ah over them and, uh, and test to see if the blade would cut. And, of course, most of them were pretty dull and, but that, that's a straight, pyramidal, elongated, uh, triangular blade. And, I mean, it's a classic dagger. Mm-hmm. Now, can you, you can certainly use that in a, quote, combat situation in the sense that you can use it to stick people. It had enough weight that you could slash with it. It had an extremely uncomfortable handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and would have made a pretty terrible camp knife. To me, the absolute epitome of a military knife is some variation on the Bowie concept as we think of it. Mm-hmm. Because you can make them pretty enough t- to be ceremonial. Mm-hmm. And if it's big enough, it can be used as a camp tool. And it can be used for all the field craft stuff that you have to use if you have to be. Because I've always defined a soldier as an armed camper with an attitude problem. <laughs> so in the, in, in, on the modern battlefield, you're going to use your knife. If all you have is a rifle, and the rifle has quit, and you've beaten it up so badly as a club that it's gone away, you're going to go to your knife if you have it. But it's going to go rifle, pistol, knife. A rifle, pistol, rifle with a bayonet, knife. And if you have, uh, if you are down to the knife, things have deteriorated pretty badly. Uh, we mentioned, we were talking earlier about, quote, sentry removal. Because one of the things that all a kid, oh, as a kid, we all... We all practiced a hell out of that with our with our wooden uh, with our wooden knives or rubber knives and, and stuff, or just pretended. And uh, guess what? Ruger makes an extremely nice little twenty-two, which uh, <laughs> the military has adopted to uh, to fire very very quiet twenty-two rounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, you got to get awfully personal uh, with somebody to slit their throat. 
Well, and then they're going to stay it, up. It, as much as uh, as much as they show people like covering up the mouth and they stab them and it, there's no noise. If you stab someone, they're, it's it's on. They're gonna they're gonna right. struggle away. You're not gonna be able to hold them, and they're gonna start screaming and making all sorts of noise. <coughs> like it's it's not as easy as they make it look. Yeah. So, <laughs> however, um, a 22 to the base of the the base of the skull. Um, uh, by uh, one of my mentors, uh, a doctor named Mel Otten. And said the only sure one stop, one shot stops are a spinal cord hit or two planes of the brain. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you can scramble a brain, you're going to get them to drop. Yeah. And that's going to be very difficult. I mean, if, if I've got to take out a sentry or something, I think what I would want is a kukri. The longer, the better. <laughs> so you can, yeah, some sort of a big slicing thing. Great big slicing. <laughs> so you can, so thing. You can behead them in one deal. Right. If they right. don't have a head, they can't scream. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but there may be gurgling noise. Yeah. But uh, but I mean I I mean that's it, the the couple. Mostly, I've, I've taken some knife fighting classes, mm-hmm. and I don't want any part of a knife fight, <laughs> and um, which is why I have a concealed carry permit. <laughs> um, but uh, but knives frequently, military knives have a ceremonial aspect to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the at the at, and Sometimes it's to help to denote that you're a special in a special unit that makes you very special. Um, and what if you graduate from from the the special forces um, school at Fort Bragg? You are presented with one of the best combination uh, ceremonial field knives that's been designed. What is it? It's the Yardley knife, and it was uh, it's built by Chris Reeve, mm-hmm. and is um, was designed by Bill Harsey. Mm-hmm. It is it has a very ceremonial aspect. I mean, if you get through that, you are. Um, I hate to build up the egos of so many people I know in special forces, but you're pretty special. Yeah, and getting that knife. Uh, has a very, very big symbolic. Uh, there's a big symbolic component, and it happens to be a pretty darn good knife. Mm-hmm. Well, the trick is if you want to build a, a military knife that has a ceremonial purpose, is getting it so that it is pretty enough that people think of it in a ceremonial way, and also have it have it be used. Be usable. Mm-hmm. The Fairbairn Sykes uh, knife of World War II, which was certainly thought of in a lot of uh, people didn't think of it in a ceremonial way. Officially, I don't, I don't think, but people thought of it as uh, I'm special because I got issued this knife. Mm-hmm. 
I can't imagine opening um, ration crates and ammo boxes and stuff with it. Yeah. You can take a Yardley, a Harsey <coughs> knife, and if you got to pry something open, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we to expand on the idea of a, a ceremonial knife, because when you when you said that, it kind of it really really kind of popped a lot of ideas off in my head, and we talked briefly about a uniform how a uniform gives people a sense of confidence and, and identifies um, that individual to others as someone who's important. Right. You know, and then, um, and there's a, if you look at uniforms, there's like a very, they're very visually appealing. You know, they have, uh, you know, sharp lines. You're never going to see on a military uniform a big, huge leisure suit collar. With rounded edges and the, <laughs> the, the piping kitchen and all of that, they're very visually appealing with sharp lines and uh, kind of hard angles uh, that give the impression of being hardened by, you know, test. Yeah. You know, and if you see a uniform that has kind of rounded lapels and you know the the the, the collar, you know what I'm talking about? The, on a sure. suit, the, where it folds over. What's mm-hmm. that called? The, well, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, well, uh, anyway, when you were wearing a suit jacket. I flunked fashion design. Yeah, me too. When you're, <laughs> when you're wearing a suit jacket, the collar folds over and then comes down the front. Those when, are lapels. Okay, lapels. When you have a, when, when you see some, a uniform with like the rounded lapels and things like that, Usually a woman's wearing it, <laughs> you know, and they're like a stewardess or something like that. We're going to take just a quick break. So we just took a quick uh, phone call, refreshed our coffee, and what I was getting at with the uniforms um, thing is something you'd mentioned earlier, and that's that a lot of times uh, once the fight begins, and I think Mike Tyson has a great quote on this, uh, everybody comes in with a plan until I smack them in the face. <laughs> <You know? Yes. clears throat> Once the fight begins, you know, you have some training, you have this and that, but things happen so quickly. And I know this from uh, wrestling and from some other martial arts that I was involved in. Things happen so quickly, especially when the other guy isn't following the rules, that uh, a lot of times the training goes out the window. And uh, I've seen military units from other countries marching, and I've seen the discipline that they have. Um, like, for instance, in Iquitos, every Sunday they have a military parade around the Plaza de Armas, which is a big place there. And I went out one Sunday to watch them, and uh, they had every unit is a special forces unit, like everyone. And they're sitting there goofing off, like popping bubble gum, you know, scratching their arm and all, all, you know, it just did not look like, did not look like our guys, you know, in a parade, you know, well, when, when even, you have to look sharp. Even more importantly, <clears throat> when the parade's over and um, the jungle stripes come on, yeah, there's probably never been as well trained an army 
as the one we have right now. Yeah. And 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 that goes uh, the level of training in World War Two and World War One and Vietnam and Korea was by modern standards abysmal. Mm-hmm. Um, and separating the biggest thing is is that in America or in the, in the States mm-hmm. excuse me we have figured out <clears throat> that we what we've done is to separate out <coughs> excuse me we've separated out the shooters from the non-shooters because mm-hmm. there's only a fairly small percentage of people who will actually try to kill somebody else on a battlefield so um, if you have in the, in the, in the, in the U.S. Army they've, they've figured out tried to figure out very heavily through testing and one thing and another who's going to actually do the work Mm-hmm. During World War II, the people who didn't shoot um, at the enemy much, uh, if at all, were tolerated by the shooters. And they're the guys who went after the ammo. They were frequently very, very brave. They just didn't want to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. And they, they stuck around. They didn't run. They went for the ammo. Uh, they, did, they did the stuff that the shooters wouldn't do. But when you got to the very elite units, there was a higher percentage of shooters to non-shooters. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and separating out the shooters from the non-shooters has made the tip of our spear a lot sharper than anybody else's. Uh-huh. If, you, if, you have a, if you have any one of the special units that the U.S. Armed Forces has, Their their effectiveness on a uh, per person per individual is huge because the skills that they have have been honed so well they know how to shoot. Mm-hmm. You know, World War Two people went on at the, you know they were on a known distance range. And they could, they could hit a target and one thing and another, but they could not instinctively hit things. Some people could, mm-hmm. but mostly um, their combat effectiveness wasn't anywhere near what we've got today. Mm-hmm. But so where I was going was you, you'd mentioned that once the fight starts, all pretty much your your best laid plans for. For most people, for most, for most, aside. for most people in most armies, right, excluding excluding our present day troops and things like this. Yeah, I mean, you take the, you take your average modern marine, your average modern infantryman in in the U.S. Army, you have a level, a skill level, which is as much higher than any average infantry, you know, any average leg unit, uh, grunt unit around, ever. Yeah. Barring, barring our guys. Um, yes. The, 
you were saying that the role of the the uh, ceremonial dagger and the uniform and all of this is to give the person the confidence to go into the fight in the first place. Yes. yes. And so that got me thinking um, about uh, you know the knives that I buy that are visually appealing or the knives that I wish I could buy that are visually appealing and what it is about them that's visually appealing. And you're going you're gonna to really laugh at me because this is kind of a closet knife that I lust after. Um, but it's because I was 12 years old when the movie came out. And it was First Blood with Sylvester Stallone. Mm-hmm. And he's got that... Uh, it's a 9-inch blade, Jimmy Lyle, hollow-handled knife. Mm-hmm. But I just love the lines on that knife. You know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of got a... The, the clip point on it comes halfway back the yeah. blade. And it's, it's just got these gorgeous, sharp lines with sharp grind lines and things like that. And that's, uh, I think if you look at the, I was paging through one of your blade magazines and looking at all the tactical knives in there, and the stuff that people are buying that, you know, it's no longer appealing to me because I look at it and I say, well, geez, what am I going to use that for? But, but it's the stuff that people are buying has those kinds of sharp lines and, and you know, and things like that. Um, the so-called tactical look mm-hmm. for knives these days is kind of interesting because uh, when I was designing the, the what what we call it, the people who hang around my forum and stuff call it tweeners, the mid-sized knives I designed on the yeah. relatively small standard handle. Um, I had come up with a handle design and I've been working on it for a long time. And I used to go up to Daryl Ralph's place uh, during the Camillus era, mm-hmm. and we would uh, take my drawings and translate them to his um, glowing cathode ray tube, and then we would he would uh, use his computer computer numerical control stuff to come up with the handles and the, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was at the dawn of the tactical era in mm-hmm. uh, knife design. And he said, "You got to do this. You got to do that. You got you got to put some sharp edges here. You got to do you know, you, it, it it's too rounded looking." Yeah. And um, and I'm thinking, well, Daryl's an excellent designer. Daryl makes beautiful knives. And. I don't always do what Daryl tells me to do, but I would listen to Daryl because he's a very successful knife designer and he's got good taste. So I'm at the SHOT Show and um, uh, Bob Dozier picks up one of, the, one of these tacticalized Becker, Becker knives mm-hmm. and he held the, holds it in his hand for no more than 30 seconds and he kind of throws it down and he said it's ass backwards and I'm like I was offended and then I got to thinking about it I picked it up and I realized that I'd let my aesthetics 
get in the way of utility. Mm-hmm. Bob was right. We'd completely redesign. Uh, we'd completely design things the wrong way. So <clears throat> I came up with a new definition of quote tactical knife close quote as a style, and that is if that it's a knife handle which is uncomfortable <laughs> that will that will jab your ribs and uh, cause you pain. Now, in my view, a tactical knife is supposed to cause pain to the person who is being stuck, not the person who is carrying it. Right. So, um, but visually, they're very appealing. Mm -hmm. I got a bunch of them. You know, they live in drawers. They hang on walls. They're safe coins because I don't want to use them. I don't want to carry them specifically. Yeah. And there are several people who have managed to combine the, the two and to make visually appealing modern, quote, tactical, close quote, knives and utility. The guys at Spartan, uh, Bill Harsey, um, uh, especially Harsey, um, uh, and speaking of hollow handles, the knife you really should have been lusting after is one of Chris Reeves' yeah. hollow handle knives. You can't get them where I can't. You probably have like a bunch of them, but <laughs> for me to get one is, you know, I just I have one or two. Yeah, and, and so he, he is, by the way, one of the people that I collect. Yeah, as as far as and I had this is kind of this is an aside. I'm a knife nut. Yes. I had to figure out at some point whether I was going to be broke. <laughs> I had to put some kind of limits on what kind of knives uh, I, I, I collected. So what I basically do is collect knives from people that I know and admire personally, mm-hmm. as well as their things. Because there's so many good knife designers out there today. There really are. And there are so many good, uh, good makers. Yeah. And when I when I first thirty years ago when I first started hanging around and uh, hanging around, the quality was compared to today was pathetic. Mm-hmm. The best knives, the worst knives, the best knives at a show in the seventies, early eighties. The best of them would not, from a from a craft standpoint, people would laugh at them at shows today. Yeah, we collect them because they're, you know, they're an early Moran, they're an early this, they're an early that, they're an early something else. But they were pretty damn primitive mm-hmm. compared to now. Yeah, the quality of the work I see at the blade show every year now. I'm I'm just like, what other wonderful planet did these come from? Yeah. Because they're just so, I mean, we've got craftsmen doing this. This is the golden age of cutlery. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's uh, Steve Schwarzer or whether it's, uh, I mean, the list that Jerry Fisk, Jimmy Kroll, all those yeah. guys. Just incredible stuff. And yeah. what they're doing with metal. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
<laughs> well, and then they... Eye candy. Yeah, well, not, not only that, but, you know, I, you look at some of Jerry Fisk's stuff, because I met him before, before I'd seen any of his work, and he's the nicest guy, and, you know, he... He's Appearances can be deceiving. Right. Well, he, I met him, and yeah. and uh, he, he taught me how to convex an edge on your grinder. Yeah. And that's basically the method that I use now. And, um, you know, nicest guy, and I didn't, yeah, know, I didn't know he was a knife maker at all. I'd never seen any of his stuff, you know, because I'm, I'm a knife nut, but I'm not, I've never been in the custom realm before. Right. I, you know, I was up, up until, like... Late college, I was carrying a Swiss Army knife, and that was my knife. Mm-hmm. You know, and I did all the same stuff I do now. I just made, just did it with a Swiss Army knife. Sure. You know, so, and I, I had knives that I lusted after, but I never, uh, I never had the money. I still don't have the money to get like a Lyle knife or even, you know, one right. of those Chris Reeves knives. But, um, and then the custom realm is something entirely different. And I, I'd see a knife in a, a magazine would be like, oh my gosh, that's so neat. But then, because I knew it was out of my price range, I knew there was no way I could ever buy it. I never paid attention to the makers. Well, so I get home from meeting Jerry Fisk, and I look at some of his stuff, and then I realize that it's he has no more tools than I do. You know, Dremel tool, you know, just... And the detail work of these, of these inlaid gold... It, I mean, you just can't believe it. Yeah. I really can't believe it. It's a, it's a bit humbling, ain't it? <laughs> well, I mean, it's yeah. it's so far above um, the best best analogy that I can give that that people would understand is uh, I one of the things I do is I I play music and um, I've been playing the drums since I was like three years old and that's my instrument, but. Um, one time I got hired as a rhythm guitarist, having never played guitar, <laughs> and so I started learning. And I did a, I learned how to play uh, 20 different songs over a weekend in my house because they said, "Well, can you play these songs?" And I said, "Oh yeah," <laughs> I never played guitar, so I went and and quick learned them. And uh, the minute I got up there, and they didn't know the difference, you know, um, but. Uh, but I have a, a very primitive level of skill on the guitar. Right. And I'll see people who have spent as much time on their guitar as I did playing the drums, and I can't even conceive of what they're doing. Like, there's so, yeah. much, there's so much beyond my level that I can't even conceive of how far beyond my level they are. And that's sure. kind of the way, you know, I have a very primitive tool set and skill set at, at knife making. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm more interested in the design and the, and the problem solving than I am the actual craftsmanship of it. Well, me too. I mean, you've seen yeah. a couple of the prototypes laying around here. <laughs> but, but You didn't want to buy them and take them and hang them on your wall. Well, no, I you? would because they're the prototype. Yeah, and but, yours. but, yeah, but, uh, if, 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 if you saw them at a show and didn't know that they had some quote historical close quote, it, you wouldn't pick one up. Well, they're horrible. But but um, without without risking saying the wrong thing, <laughs> that, you just put me in the 
No, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. I can't. I have a very, very, I try to have a very clear view of Ethan. Yeah, but I don't want. Sometimes to I, to... sometimes I lose track, but I'm more of a woodworker. Yeah. Okay. Than I am a a uh, uh, certainly than I am a metal worker. Uh-huh. And I mean, I've made a lot of, I've, I've created a lot of things made out of metal. Uh-huh. But I've never been very good at personally mangling it uh-huh. into something pretty. Yeah. You know, I come up with a comp- proof of concept, then I do the, the final design and try to give it some aesthetic appeal, um, uh, i.e., do the lines please my eye. Uh-huh. And then um, I turn it over to somebody who can uh, can manufacture it. Mm-hmm. I'm a terrible grinder. Yeah, I can sharpen like an sob, but I can't. Uh, I can't uh, grinding a knife out for me is well, it's horrible. I mean, <laughs> it's difficult. <laughs> well, it's tumbling. <laughs> yeah, but but. Um but with so basically, when I see Jerry Fisk stuff, it, it's like uh, me trying to imagine uh, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, exactly. You know, he, they're they're doing stuff that I can't even I can't even perceive it. You know, let alone right. figure out how they're doing it. You know, so yeah. that's that's the level of craftsmanship, and he's the nicest guy you ever meet. And like I said, yeah. he can. Uh, you get to know him very well. You realize that um, the practical jokester is never very far away, and he is very creative. Mm-hmm. So I guess um, to uh, to bring it back to the you know the uniform and the the line or you know the ceremonial knife giving you confidence um, to enter the fight. And things like that, and to, to make you feel special and wanted by your military. Uh, there's a when you said that, I kind of uh, I kind of had the idea. Well, geez, maybe that's where a lot of the uh, we have this fascination in this country of just I've got my knife, I've got my buckskin pants, I'm gonna go up into the mountains and I'm gonna live off the land. You know, and maybe that's where, you know, these guys have these, like, big, huge, like, honking knives that are, you know, well, mean something special, and it gives them, like, the confidence to... Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's a, there's always a tendency to think that it's, you know, having good kit, as the Brits would say. Uh-huh. Is a confidence builder. Yeah. You know, having a knife or a gun or a uh, a pot. Yeah. Okay. That's that's purpose uh, more or less purpose purpose built. Is going to give you more confidence than if you know that your knife, you know that your uh, gun, et cetera, et cetera, is a piece of garbage. Yeah. But it's, and I think it's a very human thing 
to um, to equate the quality of your equipment with your ability to do things. Mm-hmm. I know that a D8 Caterpillar is an extremely fine thing, and if I owned one, but if I owned one, it wouldn't make me any better a bulldozer driver. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and I always preach about this. You know, people don't do their dirt time. Mm-hmm. And if you live in an apartment and you're in downtown Manhattan, you know, it's very difficult to go out to Central Park and build a shelter and uh, set up camp and, you know, uh, and learn uh, stuff. But you can learn to make stuff with, uh, you can learn, you can learn all of the basics of making, making your little, uh, making traps and triggers and all that stuff by taking uh, the next time that you go out of town is bringing a bunch of twigs home, laying a damn uh, uh, old sheet out on the floor and whittling while you're walking and whittling and doing uh, doing your knife skills while you're watching during the commercials. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing that says that you can't do that. Right. And, um, uh, but people don't do it, and they they figure they can make up for it with the tool, mm-hmm. and that's um, tools are important. Good tools are important, but the skills to put them to use are even more important. And a person with a sharp rock, a recently broken rock, and and a a, a big bag of skills is better off than a person with no skills and the world's perfect knife. Right. Mind you, you should buy the perfect knife. Yes. You should buy a Becker knife. Right. (laughs) And this will give you confidence to go along with the skills that you're going to develop. Yeah. But, you know, um, and and where that's concerned, (coughs) trying to put a little... Uh, a a little cast of commercialism in here. Pick up knives. Go to a store. Mm -hmm. Pick up a bunch of knives. Do they feel good in your hand? Pick up a, uh, pick up a, 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 take a a piece of cardstock, three by five file file card, Mm -hmm. into the store with you. Does the knife cut cleanly? Does it feel as if you can shave with it, shave uh, pieces of, of, of cardstock off? Mm-hmm. If it will do those things and it's comfortable in your hand and it's about the right size for what you intend to use it for, that's going to be a good knife for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and price is certainly an indicator, but it is not definitive as to whether, whether the knife it's A, either quality, or B, that it is useful. Uh-huh. I've got some very expensive knives downstairs that are visually appealing to me. Uh-huh. And they're the last knives I would take out in the woods. Right. But they're, they're cool. <laughs> they're very cool. Yeah. 
in an emergency, I could use them to make a fire. But on the other hand, I'd, um, I'd rather not. Sometimes a, a, a $10 more knife will outcut a $600, $600 knife. I've seen that happen quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, and uh, names shall not, we shall not, um, uh, we'll sh- we shall not mention mm-hmm. names um, for fear of bringing uh, opprobrium down upon our heads. And evil emails. <laughs> Many evil emails. Yeah. And horrible trolls through our, oh, uh, yeah. through our, um, uh, our, our forums. Yeah, that you have to delete. And it just creates hassle for you and yeah. gets everybody all amped up and there's much Tim screaming and it's uh, better not to have the conflict. <laughs> but people will know. <laughs> people know. <laughs> so, Well, it's been a very uh, pleasant discussion and uh, I think we got into some some higher level thinking as it, as it relates to knife design and and uh, I think that's uh, probably good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, lots of fun. And, uh, you know, the kind of the point of the podcast is, is you know, we, we spent yesterday afternoon, yesterday evening, and this morning sitting around talking about knives. And I do that all the time with my friends that are knife nuts. And the whole point of the podcast is... Uh, to record it, <laughs> but we have, you have to be a little bit more careful about about what you say um, because you, you don't want to again bring the wrath of the citizenry down upon your head. But well, but you everybody, I mean, you know, people have people are passionate mm-hmm. about knots. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk to a case collector. And he thinks people that collect Camillus knots are crazy. Yeah. Okay. And that's slip joint pocket knots. Yeah. And I'm not saying anything, you know, that's just the way it is. Uh-huh. If you talk to a person who, who uses my knives and is very fond of them, they tend to be, defend, you know, to defend, to defend that, their position. We all do, for crying yeah. out. Yeah. And... Um, uh, and usually, the more expensive the knife, the more passionate the defense <laughs> yeah. of how useful it is. Hugely so. I, yes. I, I see that. Uh, you know, it's, I'm trying to think uh, of some, some time when this has happened to me, where I've, I've uh, bought something because there was a lot of hype around it. Oh, I know. There's a... And people, I'm not going to say the name of the knife, but... Uh, I'll tell you off the podcast. So here's here's the story, right? I uh, there's there's these tactical folders, and I did I was going to do this article on tactical folders in the Amazon, or you know hard use knives right. in the Amazon. And so I was looking. I, I did a couple posts on a couple different forums, like what are hard use folders? Like what what should I bring? I'm going to do this article, and then they had a bunch of different different things, and so. I, most of them were fairly, you know, 150, 200 bucks. Yeah. So I bought, um, I bought a sampling of them, and I bought two that were fairly expensive. One was 
Three Sisters Forge, which I loved, still love, but James Noka has it because he's left-handed, I'm left-handed, and like he wanted it, and he was, you know, at some point, you, if somebody wants it that bad, you're yeah. just gonna give it to them, you know, because if you don't, then you it haunts you and it haunts them, and it, you just don't want to do it. So I I just gave it to him. Well, that was one of the knives. Then there was another knife that they that everybody was saying, oh, this is the best thing since since sliced bread. It's, like, amazing. It's, like, the best knife ever. And there's all these... They have, like, their own forum for this. And, like, they're, these, these people are crazed about these knives, right? Um, but they're 400 bucks. So I, I, I bit the bullet, and uh, I bought one of them. And it's not in the article, so don't go look up the article. Because I... So I buy this knife, and uh, you know it comes and it's kind of shiny and it has nice, nice lines and stuff. But I get to looking at it, and it's a it's it's a hard use knife. And everybody's saying, "Oh, I got this knife. I can go chop down ten trees and gut five steers." And you know, like it's supposed to be like this Excalibur. And I get to looking at it, and number one, you close the blade. And it's got a lanyard hole on the back, and the blade goes halfway through the lanyard hole. And so that's 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 where we start. You know, it and comes out of the box. things went downhill from right, there. Right, right. It comes out of the box, and and my four hundred dollar knife has the tip of the blade going through the lanyard hole. Okay, and I, this is you're gonna laugh at this. Then I open it up. And it's supposed to have, like, the world's strongest pivot pin, which makes it as good as a fixed blade. So it does have this beefy pivot pin, but it's anchored in G10 that's less than a millimeter thick. Less than a millimeter thick G10 with a massive pivot pin in it. And I'm like, okay, well, the first thing I do is when I take this out, it's just going to snap and I'm going to be out 400 bucks and... You know, so I was really, really angry. And so I did this review video, but I was very gentle. I just pointed out a couple. Yeah. I just pointed out the lanyard whole thing, and I pointed out, well, this, this G10 here is less than a millimeter thick. And I got jumped for it. They're like, whoa, that lanyard hole, uh, you need to use a metal lanyard in there, and then it won't cut it. You know, these are actual people telling me this. Like, okay, so I have a $400 knife, and I'm going to use a metal like a steel cable lanyard on it, you know. So the apologists start, and then then I got these big lectures on how strong G10 is and like how I'm stupid and you know all of this and how a less than a millimeter thick wafer of G10 is plenty to you know make a steel chain and log chain and all this. And I'm like, well, if if a le- if a one in, millimeter thick wafer theory, right. <laughs> exactly. You know, as the guy who goes out and, and very frequently abuses knives, I've never broke them, but some of the stuff I do, um, like using the tip of a knife to pry a tinder fungus off a tree, some of the things I do would would be considered knife abuse, and, and they're right, it is abuse. You're not. I should have brought a pry bar or something, but I didn't. So. Well, you use the tool right. you have with you. Right. And but, but so anyway, this they're telling me all this stuff, and, and I'm like, well, okay, why don't we um, get a log chain and make one of the links out of a millimeter thick G10? 
you know, what what happens there? You know, just all this chimp screaming and stuff and and uh, ganging up. And so I just leave it at that. I won't even say the name of the knife because people beat me up on the podcast over it. But anyway, so this is this is what when you said you know people about real expensive knives all of a sudden become like massive apologists. Well, it's, part, it's, of, part of that's very simple. Yeah. Money is emotional. Yeah. If you spend a lot of money for something that you have a passion for, it becomes an emotional issue. Yeah. And reason has nothing to do with it. Right. And, and if, if, I you, admit, if, if, if I admit that I spent 400 bucks on a knife that is really not what it purports to be, then I'm a sucker. Yeah, so, and and I I'll fully admit it. I was suckered on that. Most people won't. Right, and so they become apologists for it. Sure, you know, but um, and then people are like, well, you could trade that. You could. It's like, no, I don't want to trade that because if I trade it off to somebody and they think they're getting this great knife and they break it, they're going to be mad at me because yeah, you know. So I'm just going to keep it, and someday I'm going to make a forging video and I'm going to throw it in the forge and melt it <laughs> but it'll be stuck it'll be stuck inside of another video and the fanboys won't be able to find it <laughs> anyway so I guess that's the that's my knife sucker story well I have many of those <laughs> I have many of those yeah and um, but I have no idea where I was going with that. Must be time to quit. Yeah. So thanks for listening. The guest is Ethan Becker, uh, Becker Knife and Tool, designer for K-Bar. He's got tons and tons and tons of knives out there. Um, check him out. Not enough. Not enough. Yeah, he's still he's still going. He showed me some designs that I won't talk about. Um, some stuff upcoming that I'm actually very excited about. Uh, and... Uh, Check out his stuff and buy his stuff. Um, my favorite of his is the BK-16, um, but he's got so many different models that you'll be able to find something that you like. And any any parting words for us? Just thank you very much, Doc. Well. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll do it again. <laughs> yeah. All right. Till next time. <laughs>